You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome back to Autumn on the Air and the second part of our series on the history of tech transfer. In part one, we explored the origins of university tech transfer offices and learned about the fascinating story of Dr. Harry Steenbach and the discovery of vitamin D. Today, I'm excited to dive deeper into this topic with our guest, Kevin Walters. I'm curious, Kevin, you know, why do you think Wharf was a success when similar efforts at, you know, Toronto, you mentioned Columbia, Minnesota and California weren't successful? I think that it goes back to that agricultural connection that they're just thinking about this in a different way. They're, they understand the, you know, we don't tend to think necessarily of agriculture as being commercial, um, but certainly there's an economic relationship there. If you're all the way back to 1890, you're thinking about these commercial questions about how do you uh uh, create better processes to sell milk on the market? How do you create cheese? How do you use science for that? They're thinking about this in a way that's commercial. Um, and it really does just get them thinking in a different different process. I think it's also Wisconsin has this alumni network and this alumni connection. Wisconsin is one of the, the founding members of the American Association of Universities, along with places like Johns Hopkins and, and UC Berkeley. And so it's a very prominent um, widespread university that does everything. It's a comprehensive university that has agricultural schools, it has letters and science schools, it has business graduates. And so all of these things come together in a way that I think really makes it um, more successful. Um, I will also say some of it, as we know, also in tech transfer, some of it is is luck or serendipity or happenstance that it just so happened that this this was happening at the right time when vitamins were, were getting big. There's a one of my advisors wrote a book called Vitamania, which is all about this craze that sweeps the nation. Once you figure out what vitamins are and you figure out that this is, I mean, it's a pretty big deal to have food that can prevent your child from getting rickets or can, can prevent them from getting scurvy. Um, and this process of vitamin fortification really takes off in the 1920s. And so some of it is timing. Um, and um, timing and the, the right structure and then just the right science at the right time. So. so then what happens after that? Do other universities follow on pretty quickly after Wharf and establish tech transfer offices or did it take a while for this idea to kind of catch on? By the end of the 30s, there are other universities that are seeing the success that Wharf is having. So um, one thing I should say before I get to that is just that so it turns out Quaker Oats is, is worse first licensee, but it turns out relatively quickly that the oatmeal is actually not the best use of this vitamin D process. So the Wharf then goes out and finds these other licensees and they end up licensing. It takes about 10 years, but they are able to develop what we now know as vitamin D milk and a process called biosterol, which is a vitamin D supplement. But in the, in the interim, Wharf is also struggling with re recognizing that like, well, this might not work out. We have a little bit of money from Quaker but we're not sure if this is going to persist. And then the, the depression happens. And so Wharf develops a, a system where they start investing the proceeds that they do have into an investment portfolio. And that's really where the financial success comes. So the, the Steambach patents over the course of their, their patent life, which is 17 years at the time, earns about $14 million, which is about $200 million adjusted for inflation, about uh, $100, $200 million. Um, but it's really investing that money into a portfolio that, that attracts people's attention because they realize that Wharf is able to give money back to the university. And so other universities, I think Iowa State is the second one to do it. Um, Purdue uh, tries it as well. But there's this mini boom of universities that are trying this research foundation idea, that are trying patenting. Um, there's a book by 
um, Greg Mowry, who talks about this, that there's there's a it's not a coincidence, I think, that you also have Big Ten universities. You also have public universities that are trying this. Um, so between the 20s and the 30s, there is this mini boom of other universities trying the WARF model or trying it different ways. Um, but that really doesn't last over the long term. So ultimately, what happened to the Steenbach patents? Um, were they litigated or, you know, not? Or did were they just licensed to a bunch of different corporations and other entities? Yeah, so as I mentioned, they were licensed to non-exclusively to dairies, exclusively to Quaker for breakfast cereals, uh, and then to five different pharmaceutical companies are creating supplemented vitamin D, basically an, a, an oil that is that is a, a vitamin supplement. Um, and that's that's successful over the course of a long time. I think one of the things that Worf is doing, inconsistent with Steambox's need for control, they're also very careful to um, test their products. So their licensees, they have control laboratories that are making sure that anybody that licenses their the, the, the process to is using it and the product that ends up on the market does actually have vitamin D in it. And this is consistent with, with Steambox ethos because he makes, he wants to make sure that this, the science is true and right and accurate. Um, but it's also partly a reaction to the American medical association, which doesn't know yet whether vitamin D can be toxic. So, so the, so on the one hand, you have people who are concerned that there's not enough vitamin D in these products. And then you have the American medical association, which is concerned there might be too much. So Worf is kind of walking this line. And in the process of that, they do, become litigious. They do go out making sure that you know one way to protect and make sure that your licensees are producing good vitamin D is a control laboratory. But you also need to make sure that there aren't infringers out there who are making false products. And one of the stories that Harry Russell told was was being on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and seeing a storefront display, which had an incandescent light bulb and some oil running underneath it and was claiming that this oil was vitamin D fortified. And that's just not how it works. You need you need a specialized UV light lamp to get this process going. And that was the example he used of why Wharf was suing some infringers and basically saying, um, we don't want fraud products getting out there. And there were requests coming into Wharf about like vitamin D fortified tobacco and chewing gum and pillowcases. And there's a list of all of these requests that they got, oh which Wharf was basically saying, we're just not going to, we're not going to do that. There's also a very famous uh, canister of vitamin D beer, slice made of vitamin <laughs> D beer, which I think was, Wharf was not involved in that. Um, but so there's this this question of control that comes from Steambox's particular ethos of being a scientist governs war for a while. And then what happens, though, is that in the early 30s, the New Deal comes along. And so the other reason why Wharf is doing this control is that there's not a government agency to do this. Like, like now, we would certainly say um, we would never have a nonprofit foundation exercising this amount of quality control over a vitamin D industry. It's just not the way we would do it. But Wharf was really filling a gap. And I think that's the part that sometimes people miss about this story is that like is that it did take 10 years to develop vitamin D milk. This was a process. And this is something that we talk about in tech transfer. People think that you just license this and the money comes rolling in. It's a very hard and difficult process to do it. And this was no different. Even though this is a home run invention, it took a long time for them to sort out this process. Um, but then the political winds change, FDR is elected, and the New Deal comes in, and they decide, rightfully so, I would say, that this is probably a place where the government should be stepping in. And they they go to Wharf, and so there's a assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division named Thurman Arnold, who is a becomes a, is a pretty famous lawyer. And he comes to Wharf, and he writes a letter, and he, he basically calls the president of Wharf to Washington and basically says, we've looked at your contracts, and there's a few things you're doing that are actually antitrust viol violations. You're, you're dividing fields. You have um, 
Quaker Oats only doing oatmeal. You have these pharmaceutical companies only doing drugs, and you, and you have this you have a yeast company that is that is doing fortified yeast. And this is this is too much control. Um, you're also so at one point the five pharmaceutical light licensees were were fighting amongst themselves about how much they were going to charge, and they were actually undercutting each other. And so Worf gets them all in a room and basically says, "Okay, you're all going to charge the same price." And well, that's price fixing and price controls. And so Thurman Arnold says, you got to stop doing that. Um, and again, I would, I would hasten to add, like, I don't want to defend that process. It was a mistake. At the same time, they were doing it because nobody else was minding the store and they didn't want this price war battle breaking out between their licensees. Um, but Worf gets it. And so Thurman Arnold makes these demands. And he, he also says, hey, by the way, you have this clause in your contract that says nobody can, um, can sub-license margarine companies. That's also not not great. And so um, Worf basically exceeds almost all of the demands that Thurman Arnold makes. He writes a letter to them and, and they change their practices. Um, the problem, though, is that very shortly thereafter, Thurman Arnold uh, is removed from the D Department of Justice. He's basically fired by being elevated um, because what had happened was, well, a war broke out and Thurman Arnold is famous for being a trust buster, for being anti-corporate, for being anti-big uh, business. And that doesn't really fly when in the middle of a war and FDR needs the companies to collaborate with him. So he appoints Thurman Arnold to the bench to get him out of the Justice Department. And he appoints a guy named Wendell Berge, who is more in line and basically reorganizes the antitrust case so that it's much more about the international fight against fascism. And he comes up with this, he writes a book called Cartels, and this comes out of the testimony he's giving to Congress, in which he says there are these global corporations that are controlling industry, and they're in league with the Nazis, and this is, this is, this is all terrible. And he finds out that Worf had a license with IG Farben, which is a German company. And Worf had signed that in the early 1930s, right? Um, but as with everything in Germany, over the course of the 1930s, it is captured by the Nazis. And so there's this implication that Worf is collaborating with this Nazi um, regime. And, and he turns Worf into a scapegoat and basically says Worf is a front for this international vitamin D cartel, which doesn't work with the science. Like, like Worf did not have a, a monopoly on vitamin D. You can get vitamin D by going out outside and, and in the sun. There are also other ways of getting vitamin D, cod liver oil, those kind of things. Like Worf never had a monopoly on vitamin D. It had a monopoly on a process for creating vitamin D that it was controlling pretty aggressively. Um, and so the, the, the nuance that you had with Thurman Arnold and George Haight, who was the president of Worf, there's a nuanced I would say productive relationship there of balancing the interests of a nonprofit corporation with the, with the interests of the government. And when wartime comes along, that gets thrown out the window. And so what ends up happening is that is the Department of Justice joins a lawsuit that Worf is involved in. It's called Vitamin Technologists is the name of the case because that's the name of the company that Worf, that was infringing Worf's patents. And eventually it gets to an appellate court and appellate court tries to invalidate the steam bio patents. Uh, and that's the one, if you Google around vitamin technologists, you'll see that that appellate decision, which is a pretty aggressive decision. It's saying things like margarine is the butter of the poor. Um, and Worf is basically implying that Worf is killing small children and these kinds of things. And, and, um, therefore the patent should be invalid and that they were patenting sunshine, which is again, not accurate. Um, um, but that's the case that's out there. Um, so what Worf does then is they appeal to the Supreme Court. They're not granted cert, uh, cert. They're not. The Supreme Court decides not to hear them. But Worf then sues in another district, another jurisdiction to try to get two appellate decisions to try to, to settle this, this case. And as that's working through um, the court system, Worf realizes that, well, the Steambach patents, this is by now, it's we're getting close to the, it's the mid 40s. The Steambach patents are already starting to expire. Um, and Worf then decides to settle with the with the Justice Department. And by that time, the war ends. This is this is part of the story that I haven't fully dug into yet, but I think the war ending and just history changing again 
the ultimate resolution is a consent decree, which Worf says we will dedicate the patents to the public in exchange for the government dropping all investigations of us and declaring that we did nothing wrong and we'll just all move on. And so that's the end. And then Worf actually does then continue manufacturing vitamin D additives on our site in Madison um, for another 20 years or so making vitamins. But we don't, we, but the patents, they were dedicated to the public in 1946. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story. And and so we're up to the end of World War II. And can you talk a little bit, Kevin, about how that environment after the war then ultimately led to the passage of Baidol? And this will probably be part of the story that I think people, certainly the tech transfer industry, will be more familiar with. Um, because it's part of the story we tell about about the Baidol Act. So certainly, so at Wharf, the patents are dedicated to the public. Wharf basically gets into the, the vitamin manufacturing business. They also have these control laboratories that they've built for the Steambach process um, that then become businesses of, of, in and of themselves. I mentioned George Keto earlier, who was the head of our insecticide laboratory. So the control, the vitamin control laboratories are expanded into insecticides and pesticides. And so that's what's happening at Wharf at that time. But at the same time, in the 1940s, you have an explosion of federal funding of federal agencies. So NIH existed before World War II, but the the funding for NIH just explodes in the 40s and 50s. You have the creation of NSF um, in 1947. I hope I'm getting that date right. Um, but in 1947, and then and other agencies so like the Atomic Energy Commission, which is just a massively funded. So unlike World War One, in which the research funding that happened during the war effort is scaled back, you have the competition with the Soviets during the Cold War. It's a different story this time. And so the federal government becomes this just massive, becomes the by far the number one provider of funding for researchers at universities. And it's different than what was happening in the early days with of Steenbach and Babcock, when basically the government basically said, um, we'll give you a certain amount of money and then you can create a an experiment station. We're funding the institutions or the land grant act, which basically said, we're, we're going to give you land, which you can sell off and then use that to create your university. We're not going to tell you what to do on that university. And oh, by the way, we're going to take that land from Native Americans, which is another part of the story. Um, but so up until World War II, the model for government funding is, is, is basically, first of all, it's much, much less than what happens later, but it's also institutional funding. It's we're going to fund an experiment station. We're going to give you money to build your infrastructure. And then you get to decide what the science is. After World War II, it's much more direct grants to direct universities where you apply for a grant and you're going to do a particular type of research project and NIH or NSF is going to decide whether they're going to give you money based on that project. So it really turns universities into these places with their, that are independent contractors. And the, the famous words of Clark Kerr, who is the president of the University of California, he said, universities these days are really a series of independent entrepreneurs united by a common grievance about parking. Um, and that's what university, universities become really in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now, what does that have to do with the Bayh-Dole Act? Um, well, the policy is that at the time, based on several executive orders, is that if the government is funding the research, then it owns the patent rights and owns the intellectual property rights. And that basically begins to put places like Wharf out of business. So I mentioned there's, there's, there's that mini boom that happens in the 30s. A lot of that is 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 just diminishing. And places like Iowa State and Wharf continue to exist. But certainly the, the statistics is really happens over the course of the 1960s that Wharf goes from getting several dozen patent disclosures every year to basically zero by the end of that decade. And so um, we've had another blockbuster invention by that point. There's, there's, a, there's a drug called Warfarin that was invented in the 40s. And we made a lot of money off of that as well. And that's our second, that's a whole other podcast, I suppose. But um, but after the Steambach patents and then the Warfarin patents, 
Worf begins to realize, well, I, I think this this business of patenting is probably going to go the way the dinosaurs because the federal government is stepping in here. And there's there's a famous case about an early, um, for us, about an early chemotherapy drug in which we collaborated with the American Cancer Society and the McArdle Cancer Institute here on uh, um, the McArdle Laboratory, Cancer Laboratory here on campus, um, and with Hoffman and Roche, the drug company, developed this early chemotherapy. And we wrote a letter to, we being uh, the director of WARF at the time, wrote a letter to uh, NIH basically saying, are you okay if we try to patent and develop this drug? And they said, yes. Um, then the general accounting office gets involved and basically says, you shouldn't have done that. And then there's this whole b- big investigation that, um, again, a longer story than we may have time to tell. Um, but ultimately, right before the drug is about to go to market, the government steps in and cancels all of Worf's contracts. And so Worf is actually not the patent holder here. It's actually just negotiating on behalf of patents that are owned by the American Cancer Society and Hoffman Roche. And ultimately, all of the work that Worf put into developing this drug is effectively canceled and we're shut out. And in, in this case, we were lucky that because of the the very kind of backwards way that they did this, the development work actually happened and the drug makes it onto the market. And I think people could look at that story and think, um, well, the drug came to market, what's the problem? And, and it's, well, well, what happened subsequently is that nobody... Hoffman and Roche would never work with with Worf ever again because it would be a federally funded, um, uh, federally funded research that they're just not going to invest money into, um, and so that's the problem that's happening there. Um, and and so we have there's a division actually inside Worf. There are people at Worf who are basically saying we have this investment portfolio, we have these control laboratories, we have all this other business that we're doing. Let's just lean into that. Let's just evolve and become a real estate development organization or a conservation organization. Um, a family had decided to donate a bunch of land in the Wisconsin Dells to Wharf. And so we, we, we are now property owner. We had all these other things going on. Um, and that was one model, which is we could just go off and find a way to make money that has nothing to do with patents. Um, but there's a, a couple of people at Wharf who see things differently. One is Howard Bremer, who was our patent counsel. And the other was Marv Werpel, who was our director of licensing. And Howard, who I had the privilege of meeting before he passed away in 2013, would tell the story about, he said, when he got hired, the people at Wharf who are more interested in this business side basically said, we hired you as a patent counsel, but just don't get too comfortable here because your job's <laughs> not going to exist in a couple of years. Um, and Howard, you know, maybe a little bit steambocking him because he's a little, little persistent. And he started working with um, the the NIH, with the, the patent counsels there. Actually, what happened before that was that there's a guy named Hector DeLuca who happened to be Steambach's very last graduate student and is Steambach's successor who takes over um, for Steambach when Steambach retires. And DeLuca had never worked with Worf before, but Steambach had told him the stories. And so one day in the late 1960s, he just walks into the Worf offices and basically says, I'm doing some vitamin D research. Um, I'm wondering if it's patentable. Could you help me? And he finds Howard. And Howard says, well, let's give this a shot. And that's when he starts talking to NIH and particularly to a guy who works at NIH called Norm Latker, who's a patent counsel there. And Norm Latker knows the statutes well enough to say, well, there's a clause that we have in our contracts that basically allows you to, I can issue you a waiver so that you can try to patent DeLuca's inventions. And that waiver then turns into, they develop uh, over the course of a number of years, they start working with Bill Young, who's the vice chancellor at the university um, at the time. And they work out an agreement called an institutional patent agreement, which basically says, instead of just this one waiver, we're going to allow everything you did with NIH to be covered by this agreement. So we're just going to sort of assume that everything is waived. Uh, and then they, they have a subsequent agreement then with N- uh, NSF, and this becomes the IPA program. And this is in the early, uh, starts in 1968, is is formalized in 1973. And then long story short, 
that IPA agreement becomes the text of what becomes the Bayh-Dole Act. And because then you have Senator Bayh in Indiana, who's having similar conversations with Purdue, they get together with Howard and they figure out the solution and they introduce the Bayh-Dole Act, which essentially codifies by congressional act what was developed in the Institutional Patent Agreement. And that becomes the Bayh-Dole Act. Well, Kevin, what are your next steps? And do you think your thesis will ultimately become that book that you were initially hired for? Well, I don't know. I, I did just find out uh, literally just yesterday that we we may be giving copies of my dissertation to our board of trustees. Um, we're, we're still uh, figuring out if we can get it printed in time. But so that's that's the first step. And and it was I, I mentioned that that my my mentor and benefactor, Carl Gabranson, former director of work, passed away earlier this fall. And I, I was glad to be able to get a bound version of my dissertation and give it to him be, before he, he passed and write a preface that that told the story, um, which you, you read, Lisa, which tells a story about how Carl hired me and where that came from. And so that version is available. We have a PDF version online. And if anybody reaches out to me and wants to read it, I'll be happy to share it. Um, I, I will warn you ahead of time that it's over 500 pages. So just know what you're getting yourself into. But Yeah. Having read it, I will say, though, it's a fascinating 500 pages and it goes pretty quickly. Well, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I would like to maybe polish it up a little bit. Pl- here and there, maybe divide it into pieces, try to figure out how um, I, since I deposited and completed my dissertation, I've moved into the policy realm. I guess the way I would describe it, part of it was, you know, as I mentioned, I got hired by the communications department. When Carl was retiring, he went into our, uh, the office of our director of communications and basically said, don't you think Worf needs an historian? And she said, yeah, I do. And I'd like him to be on my team. And so that's how that started, but that's been a really fruitful partnership. And I've really grown more to, to better understand you know, what I would say is I'd studied the history, but I didn't really understand what Worf does today. And I understood the biochemistry of 100 years ago. I didn't really, you know, I don't have a science or legal background. And so um, I'm helping out with things like our non-confidential summaries, uh, what we call our, our, our technology summaries, helping out with that process, working with some of our graduate students to try to help that process and learning a lot about what we do now. Um, I've also been engaged with the Baidol Coalition and with uh, some of our allies in Washington and around patenting to try to better understand those issues and how we can contribute and uh, try to get in touch with our congressional delegation. So that's kind of been my um, my way of getting up to speed over, of what's happened over the last 100 years since I uh, the history that I was studying. Um, and so it's taking up a lot of my time. And I don't know that I have time right now to to really redevelop the dissertation into a book that might get published. But um, who knows if this uh, podcast leads to a huge demand, maybe I could convince a publisher to, to do a little bit more with that. We'll see where that goes. Well, let's hope that's the case. And Kevin, thank you so much again for spending so much time with me today talking about the founding of Wharf and for sharing this absolutely fascinating story. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you. I, Give me the opportunity. It's always great to tell the story. I, I once I get going, I, I really get going on it. So, um, but it's always exciting to have a chance to share the story, and hopefully, it'll generate some other conversations, uh, whether at autumn conferences or just uh, via email. I hope that people will uh, will appreciate it, and I also want to hear the stories of other the, the creation of other TTOs. I'd like to hear those stories as well. And so, if people know that story and want to share those with me and try to build a community around some of the scholarship, I think that would be great. I think that would be fantastic. Thank you so much again, Kevin. Thank you. That concludes our deep dive into the history of tech transfer, from the establishment of the first university tech transfer office at Wharf to the passing of the Bayh-Dole Act, we've explored the fascinating story of how universities have been able to bring their innovative ideas from the lab to the marketplace. I hope you found this podcast series informative and engaging, and that you've gained a better understanding of the important role that universities play in advancing innovation and driving economic growth. Thank you to our guest, Kevin Walters, and for joining us, and to all of you out there for tuning in. 
Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.